Welcome to the Santa Fe Community Foundation podcast channel. This is Anne-Marie McLaughlin. I serve as the Senior Director for Community Leadership and Impact with the Foundation. Our goal with this series is to discuss community philanthropy with leaders and community members throughout our region who are working toward a thriving New Mexico. Today is May 4th, 2020, and we're discussing 100% Community, a project of the Anna H. 8 Institute with Institute co-founders Dominic Capello and Dr. Catherine Ortega-Courtney. Catherine, let's start with you. Will you share some of your background and what brought you to the work you're doing now? Um, sure. So my uh, work has been historically based on um, research and data and trying to bring that into government sectors and other areas that don't necessarily tend to use those things. Um, I have a PhD in experimental psychology, which revolved a lot around, you know, statistics and how do we actually know what practices are effective and which aren't. I started out with the goal of um, being a substance abuse treatment researcher, but it has evolved as I try to get to the root causes of all of those things. I kind of keep digging deeper and deeper. So that led me to the world of child welfare. Um, and kind of the things that happen in childhood that cause problems later in adulthood. And um, that's where I met Dominic. And we basically started writing a book called Anna Age 8 while we were working for the Child Welfare Department in New Mexico um, because we saw that the way the system was set up, it was not set up to work um, as far as actually helping families and kids be set up for success. So I'm sure we will talk a lot more about what's in that book and our next book um, as we go on. Absolutely. Thank you. Dom, what would you add to that about the project and, of course, about your own particular path to this work? Well, do you want me to uh, talk about my college years and working at Disneyland as Captain Hook? Would you like me to start there or a little bit later? If that feels like a starting point that set you on a path to get here, absolutely bring it. Actually, I, uh, I actually learned a lot working at Disneyland about communication and a good user experience. They have pretty high standards in terms of treating their clients well. Uh, my, uh, my uh, college years uh, focused on, uh, in grad school, focused on communication and language. I've probably been working uh, for decades in the field of training and continuous quality improvement. So again, like Catherine using data to look at problems within agencies and communities and to address those problems. I was lucky enough to have a book series uh, quite a while ago that did catch the attention of Oprah Winfrey. And when you get the attention of Oprah Winfrey, uh, lots happened, uh, a lot happened. And, uh, and I was able to use a lot of that attention to, to focus my work on making sure that um, we could help communities, no matter what role you play, um, become an active member in, in creating communities that are healthy and safe. That's great. What, let's stay with you, Dom. What's on your mind right now, today, that you want people to hear? What's on my mind is that we are both in trouble and we have an incredible opportunity to address that trouble. I'd like to say that, you know, Catherine and I work um, surveying um, counties in New Mexico. So we know to what degree our parents have access to medical care. 
And when you learn that in Rio Arriba County, about a third do not have access to medical care, that's a problem in a pandemic. That's a problem really anytime, but especially in a pandemic. We, we have heard some pretty um, uh, mortifying stories about uh, families uh, where we're working in Doniana County, Socorro County, Rio Riva County, and San Miguel County, uh, as well as Taos Pueblo, um, where there's just no access to vital services. And I think you know in our book, we talk a lot about the survival and surviving services and the thriving services. So that's, that's the trouble part I talked about. The good news is this. We know exactly how to fix this problem. We know how to work with communities, county leaders, city leaders, philanthropy to create a new system that can actually address the gaps. And I believe that um, if our leaders in philanthropy come together as one strong coalition, with their millions and millions and millions of dollars, we can direct those resources and actually do incredible work. I'll look forward to unpacking that more with both of you. Catherine, is there something on your mind right now that you really want people to hear? What keeps coming back to me as we go through this strange time is I don't, I don't know that there's ever been another time in which people have all been sort of traumatized and broken out of their usual routines all at the same time all over the world like we are right now. And I think it's important to acknowledge that that is part of what is happening and that everybody's kind of dealing with it in, in their own sort of unique way. So we see people, um, you know, becoming like really engaged in some work and really trying to make things happen. We see other people totally disconnecting. We see other people struggling with, you know, anxiety and things like that. And I think it's just important to, to acknowledge that, to acknowledge this is a situation that none of us has been through and none of us knows how to deal with um, exactly, but we can all kind of cut each other some slack. And I think it's also important to take the perspective, like Dom said, of this is really a unique opportunity for us to reprioritize both as individuals as well as communities. So what, what actually is important? You know, what, what can we focus on to come out? What are our priorities as we get through of this? Do we want to take care of each other? and make sure that everybody has access to what they need, or is it gonna be a every person for themselves kind of situation um, like we were in before we entered this? So I think we're at a really unique and fascinating turning point in the world. I love that sense of the turning point. Let's look at the distinctions you make in your work between survival needs and thriving needs. And starting with survival needs, which you identify as food, housing, medical and dental care, behavioral health, and transportation. So certainly we could talk a lot about any one of those areas, and we know that they overlap, of course. But uh, maybe, Catherine, you could start in terms of giving us a sense of how did these priorities rise to the top for you? What did that process look like? It's kind of interesting what led us to those five things is, is a multiple kind of path to get us there because everything we research and everything I've researched in my career from substance abuse prevention to um, you know, child welfare to working at the community foundation, looking at educational outcomes, it all kind of boils down to if you don't have those basic survival things, you know, at the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy, all of those, any kind of model will show if people don't have 
basic food and housing and sort of stable environments, they are not going to be able to be successful in other things. And so um, those five basic things, food, housing, medical care, behavioral health care, and here really in America and especially in New Mexico, transportation is so vital because we don't necessarily live in a place where you can just walk outside and walk to a grocery store or walk to your medical care. You need some way to get there. So those kind of five things, if we don't have that in place and if kids don't have that in place, they're not going to do well in school. You know, adults aren't going to do well in the workplace. It's kind of getting yourself to a stable place and then we can move on to thriving from there. Sure. Do you, do you ever get pushback or disagreement from community or partners on these top priorities? Nobody really disagrees that people need food um, to live or, you know, housing to, to be successful. What people tend to disagree on is, is how we go about making sure everybody has access to that. And, um, you know, Dom has some examples of when we've been giving talks and people are, are completely in agreement with us. And then we'll say, yeah, except we should only provide it to those that deserve it and things like that, which is kind of, you know, an interesting perspective that we, that we kind of have to navigate sometimes. Would you say that people are then forthcoming about their definition of deserving? Um, you know, <laughs> it, it, in some ways, yeah, I think, you know, it's like, there are certain biases that people have about people who tend to need resources or, or need help from the government and things like that. And it's part of why our work is successful, I think, is because we've been able to tell those stories, like the story of Anna, who, you know, through no fault of her own, was in a bad situation. And, and when you actually dig into the case of her mother as well, you can see it was like this, she was basically set up to fail her entire life. And, um, so pulling back the curtain a little bit on people who struggle and families who struggle and realizing any of us could be in that situation if our lives had gone a little differently. Absolutely. Yeah, and I, I'd like to add, if, if I may, uh, sure. you know, in a pandemic and, and in an economic disruption, uh, it, it's no longer those people over there across town who are in trouble. We live in a world where, you know, I... Um, you know, I stand in line with a mask and can only buy one loaf of bread. I mean, you know, we're very, very vulnerable right now. The middle class is vulnerable, and it would only take the blink of an eye and the sign of a pen and a decree by a governor to say, you know, um, suddenly food's not available four days out of the week. I mean, these are th that this is not impossible. It's not out of the realm of possibility, and there could be good reasons for that, but. You know, I think in the middle class, we 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 tend to we tend to think that you know we you know we have what we need, we can pay for what we need, but we don't live in that world anymore. We don't we don't live in a world where anything is guaranteed, and there are lots of people who have beautiful middle class lives, and they're learning that their jobs, you know, suddenly they may be furloughed, um, and these are government jobs, so you know, considered the most stable. So. No job is stable, no job is safe, and that means we all may need help with housing, we all may need help with um, food, with medical care, and I'm not saying this to be alarmist, I'm saying this to be pragmatic. This is why all of us, 100% of us, should gather together, let's just make sure we all have access to these services. We know how to do it, there aren't limited services. We, we have the imagination and the creativity and the resources 
We just have to re redistribute. But let's speak to that piece in particular, and, I, and then I want to come back to the, the trauma as well, which you're really alluding to with the instability we're seeing. But on the, we have the ability, that's good news. Speak to me a little bit about what, what goes wrong. Why are we where we are? Well, I mean, we, we Catherine and I talk a lot about, uh, well, we call it the three-headed hydra. And uh, we, we, we made up this term to, to describe some people that we meet on our journey who, who don't agree that people should have the right to any of these services, as a matter of fact. And the three-headed hydra would be apathy, envy, and fear. And these are characteristics of people who, who will block innovation, who will block any kind of problem solving. And, um, you know, we, we could talk for hours about this kind of psychology, but we, when we enter counties, we meet lots of people. We do lots of informational interviews. And the good news is most of the people we meet are amazing, absolute champions. But there is always one in the group, and often they have power. And will be, I don't, I'm not so sure about this. They're the one who says, uh, no, no, no. Um, if they're not deserving, they don't get food. And it's too bad about their kids. And, and we just look at them and look at each other. And we're really actually not quite sure what to say. But we, there is a whole area, you know, a school of thought. Uh, it's called adaptive leadership. And in adaptive leadership, they teach you there are two kinds of challenges. Uh, one, one type of challenges would be called technical challenges. So, for example, if you, uh, if you have, uh, you know, a food bank that isn't really working well, um, you could say, well, technically, let's talk about the staffing and is the building in the right place? Are the hours the right, the right hours? These are technical problems, right? That we're not really debating them. They're like, you're right. Yeah, there are technical issues. But there are also adaptive challenges. And adaptive challenges are along the lines of back to, um, I, don't, I don't even think we need a food bank. I mean, why, why, what, what's that even here for? So, so we know that when we hit up against adaptive challenges in the form of the three-headed hydra, uh, we know that we have to stop, we have to back up, and we have to really assess the situation to see, uh, can we move forward? You know, when you hit up against someone and if they're in a position of power, uh, you can't just bulldoze your way through. You have to stop and you have to ask, is this community, uh, are they ready for change? Do they have the capacity for change? And this, this works on an agency level, a city level, a county level, a state level, a national level. I really like that, thinking about those different levels. But, but before we totally move away from this, maybe Catherine, you could speak to, when we look at the instability that's happening in the world right now, and as you mentioned earlier, it is the world. And as you pointed out, Dom, it's hitting the middle class and folks who may have felt stable very recently. Are, is it too soon to know if that experience is uniting us or dividing us and further entrenching that apathy, envy, and fear? 
I think it's probably too soon to know. I can say, um, and Dom alluded to this earlier, we're very lucky because we get to work with the people who are super engaged and super ready and super um, excited to change things and want to help their communities and, and kind of get it. So we have a unique perspective that's probably more optimistic, I think, than maybe a lot of people uh, because we see it happening in real life. I think, you know, when you see sort of the mainstream media talking about people protesting and how, you know, it's this versus that or right versus left or openers versus non-openers, um, there's a lot of attempts to divide us constantly. And I think we're, those of us who don't really care you know, who gets credit for things or whether it's left or right or whatever, we just want to see things get better in our communities. I think, um, you know, if we, if we can manage to show success in some of these things and like, like Matt Probst is doing in San Miguel um, and our champions are doing in Socorro, actually bringing water to people and mm -hmm. providing medical care and things like that. I think that's a real opportunity to unite people in a real way. And again, you can't argue with data that shows you know, things are getting better in certain places and people will know that because they will have experienced it themselves. And nothing breeds success like success. We certainly exactly. Hope. Let's pivot to your model and your process. And I'd, I'd invite either of you to speak to this, but how did you come to focus on counties in particular? Well, we, we looked a lot at, uh, resources who has resources in in the communities and when you look at resources you learn you you quickly learn that a city government has resources they they tax people they collect money they provide services a county does the same um certainly school districts can do the same in, in some creative ways um we looked at where are the most vulnerable people living? And of course, what we found was they, they really can live anywhere. They can live within a city center in a kind of neglected part of town, often called the other side of town. But certainly in New Mexico, once you leave city limits, you're in county. And county um, can be pretty stark in many, many, many places. So we know that people from the county will drive into the city to get services. So um, it, it just led to lots of conversations about all the little communities that exist within a county's borders. And we thought, well, if we can get county government leadership and city government leadership to work together in alignment, to collaborate, then all the communities within the county's borders will benefit. Now, this doesn't mean that suddenly every tiny community gets a giant medical center, but it does mean that we look at that little community and we interview those uh, family members in that community to, act, to ask, where do you get your survival services? Where do you get your thriving services? And if you can't get them nearby, can we get, can we arrange transportation to get you into the city to, to a major hub that would have those services? So it just made sense to us that um, if we can get people working together, and this, by the way, in some counties is an easy thing, and in other counties is a not-so-easy thing, but it is possible. And I think we're going to see real successes. Um, I think in San Miguel with Matt Probst, you're going to see, we are seeing county government, city government, higher education, um, emergency readiness, the sheriff's office, they're all collaborating. Their model is, it's right there. They're having uh, video conferencing weekly. Um, I'm talking to Matt Probst daily. So we're seeing a success story evolve. 
And we're also seeing these stories evolve in Doniana County and Socorro County. So there are wonderful lessons to learn, um, but that's why we have the county model. We, th we think it makes sense, and um, it's what we're really excited about, and one, we're, one we are watching and measuring. I love the way you speak about talking to community members about their really on the ground needs. And I hope that that helps to move county leaders. But Catherine, would you speak to, in, in working with county leaders, how do you know when they will be willing to work together? What, what does readiness look like as you're selecting the next county to start implementing this work? I think one hugely important piece of that is in assessing county readiness is, is there a champion? Is there someone like a Matt Probst, a JC Trujillo, a Cassandra Gondora, who approaches us and basically says, I'm doing this. And, you know, we'll say, well, we don't have funding. And they'll say, I don't care. We're doing it anyway. That <laughs> makes a huge difference as far as if the count, if in our opinion, the county is ready to move forward, because if they don't have that person that's willing to kind of be the, the community voice and the leader and has the existing relationships in the county, it's not going to work for us to come in and basically say, you're doing this. We know that that happens a lot in New Mexico and especially in, in certain, you know, communities that have had a lot of struggles they're used to people coming in and saying here's how to fix you and then they are there for six months and then they leave and we know that that doesn't work it has to be kind of grassroots driven from a trusted community member um, and then that person is usually usually already has existing relationships and if they don't they have sort of that reputation or that trust to be able to get other people on board um, one of our favorite stories is when we told Matt Probst and San Miguel County that, um, you know, one of the next steps to get started would be we need to identify an action team leader for each of our 10 sectors. And when we told him that, we're thinking, okay, this is going to take him, you know, months. And he comes back in a week and says, here's, here's our leaders, here's their bios, everybody's excited, let's do it. And, so, you know, to have someone with that level of relationships and trust in the community really just makes a huge difference. That's wonderful. It sounds as if those who would like to get more involved in this work can reach out to you directly. Dom, will you share how they can do that? Sure, yeah. Our, you know, our URL, uh, it's annaage8.org, and I'll, I'll spell that out for you. Anna, A-N-N-A, -N -N -A, a little girl's name, age, A-G-E, 8, E-I-G-H-T, Dot org. Anna Age 8 is the, is the name of the little girl who, who was the uh, catalyst for our first book, Anna Age 8. So if you go to our website and you look at the menu bar along the top, you can certainly click on San Miguel and look at their model, look at their 10 um, action teams, look at who's on the action teams. On, on a school action team, we have the superintendents of the schools. So we're, we're getting very high-level people here as action team leaders and anyone can become a member, you know, anyone who wants to be involved can join that team. So this is a, this is a very transparent initiative. Uh, there's a doorway in for anyone who wants to be collaborative and, and shares a collective vision where it, it really just comes down to this. Should people have access to 10 services for surviving and thriving or shouldn't they? If the answer is yes, join the 100% community initiative 
If you're not sure, join us anyway, and we're gonna we're gonna win you over. And if you just feel like no, that that's not for me, then then this is not for you. This is not for you. That's a great pitch, Catherine. Is there something else on your mind that maybe we didn't address in this talk that you'd like to highlight for folks? Um, you know, we covered quite a bit. It flies by, doesn't it? Uh, but I think it. I think the most important thing is what is what we talked about as far as everybody's struggling right now everybody's trying to figure out what things are going to look like after this and i would say everybody has a role in what things are going to look like after this it's not just the people in charge it's the people who have the vote and people who can advocate and speak up for themselves and that's one of our favorite things about working with counties is when we go out when we used to be able to go out and and actually meet with people and see that kind of evolving in action where you see people who didn't know that they they had a voice and that people would listen to them and they start kind of demanding more from their lawmakers and their city councilors and once we have um you know real data showing the lack of access to things it's a really powerful tool and the actual community becomes the voice of of reason and demands real change that's wonderful. Thank you so much for being with us. We've been visiting with Dominic Capello and Dr. Catherine Ortega-Courtney. They're the co-founders of the Anna Age 8 Institute, and one of their highlighted projects today that we discussed was 100% community. Thank you to our listening community, and stay in touch. To learn more about the Santa Fe Community Foundation, visit us online at santafecf.org join our weekly e-news list and consider supporting this work with a contribution of any size to the SFCF Community Leadership Fund. Join us again and thank you for all that you do. Community participation is community philanthropy.